Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The Bowery Boys episode 314. Tilly Hart. The holdout of London Terrace. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And I'm Tom Myers. And for those of you who are just tuning into the show for the first time in a while, we have updated our schedule for the moment. Yes. So during this pause of ours, mm-hmm. when New pause. Yorkers and uh, pause when other New Yorkers and other and others around the world are staying inside their apartments and homes for safety, we decided to increase the frequency of the Bowery Boys podcast. Right. For the time being, until things calm down again, um, we are going to be releasing new shows every Tuesday and Friday. Um, these are shorter shows. They might be a little bit looser, but they are going to be much more frequent. Yes, right now, history and historical tales feel good. (laughs) They do indeed. (laughs) And we are asking you for help um, with topics to cover. Yes, we'd love to hear your suggestions for these mini shows. And we'll tell you how you can send us those suggestions at the end of the show. Right. Today's show, actually, which was partially suggested by one of our listeners. Um, Thank you, Brett for uh, writing to us five days ago. And we were drawn to the topic because we're all spending a lot of time inside right now. And so we thought that we would turn our attention to a woman who became something of a darling in the press in 1929 for doing what we are all doing right now, namely not leaving her home. This is the story of Tilly Hart, a woman who was, she was not a recluse. Mm-mm. She wasn't antisocial at all, actually. No. She wasn't hiding out from the police. No, Tilly Hart was a true blue holdout. A holdout. What's a holdout, you might be asking? In this case, a holdout is somebody who is preventing a major construction project from taking place, mm-hmm. um, preventing it by refusing to sell or refusing to move out so that the project could start construction. And in the case of Tilly Hart, she's holding out and preventing a major apartment and hotel complex from being constructed in Chelsea, 
And a building that still stands today, rather majestically so, I'd say, Mm -hmm. um, on 23rd between 9th and 10th Avenues. That is the London Terrace. Many of you have probably seen the London Terrace while walking along the High Line, actually. You can see it from the the 23rd Street stop. Many of you might even live at London Terrace Mm -hmm. or London Terrace Gardens. Um, And it's many buildings, actually. It takes up that entire... Uh, stretch between 9th and 10th. But if Tilly had had her way, London Terrace would never have been built in the first place. So join us as we pay a visit to Tilly Hart, the holdout of London Terrace. Okay, Greg, before we get started, can I just say how excited I am to finally get to talk about Tilly Hart? (laughs) This really is one of the pleasures of this new format we're experimenting with. We never would have been able to devote an entire show on Tilly before. Not that her story isn't important. No. You know, we've we've talked about doing just a holdout show before, like on just a group of different holdouts, Mm -hmm. but never on just one holdout. Would you say we've been holding out? We've been holding out. That is true. And there are a couple good um, books out there actually on holdouts in general. There's a whole holdout scene, if you will. Um, (laughs) But of course, we don't have access to any of those books at present. (laughs) No, only the ones in our own house. Houses, unfortunately. Definitely a challenge with producing this show while being confined in our in our homes here. Yeah. No library access except, you know, some except for digital books. Oh for the day when we will be strolling again into the New York Public Library and the New York Society Library and diving into the archives at the New York Historical Society. May we never again, Greg, take those fabulous <laughs> collections for granted. Well, fortunately, though, Tilly's story was extremely well covered by the press. Right. So we at least have all of those accounts to draw upon. Yeah. Back in 1929, Tilly got a lot of press, especially in October of 1929. So where exactly are we going to start the story here? Well, I think it's best to start um, with a, a piece from the Daily News um, on mm-hmm. f- that ran on, f- on Friday, September 27th, 1929, um, on page four. Now, there's a photo okay. here. Imagine a photo of a three-story home in Chelsea um, with three windows on each floor facing 23rd Street with striped awnings kind of swooping down over the windows. This is an old-fashioned home. At the time of the story, it's already um, more than 80 years old um, because it had been constructed in the 1840s. Well, it sounds very charming. Yes, um, but then you notice that it's standing alone. In fact, the side of the building, the outside wall, shows remnants of whatever building had been touching it. You can see scraps of old wallpaper hanging onto the wall. There, There are openings that had been fireplaces, bits of an old staircase are still sort of hanging on. This 1840s home is the only thing standing on this entire mid-section stretch of the block. Everything else has been demolished. Uh, And the headline actually reads, Embattled Landlady Defies March of Chelsea Wreckers. To quote from the article, Steam shovels to the left of her, yawning excavations to the right of her, embattled Mrs. Tilly Hart, aging landlady who has held the fort in her home on the wastes of London Terrace, whence all but her have fled, once more defied big business successfully yesterday. 
her decrepit three-story home at 429 West 23rd Street, now alone on the wreck-laden waste where a big building soon is scheduled to rise, again is the goal of evictors. This is so melodramatic. It's vis- <laughs> telev- televisual. It's cinematic, actually. Um, but let's meet the main players here. Let's let's put some characters into this. Okay. So according to this, the lone standing home is occupied by the embattled Mrs. Tilly Hart. Yes, the, quote, aging landlady, uh-huh. which really seems like a label that nobody would ever want applied to them. Um, no. <laughs> she is... Not moving from her home at 429 West 23rd, where she rents out rooms. And why would she have to leave? They're constructing a big building on the block? Yeah. Uh, The article goes on to explain that all the buildings on the block, an entire row of historic 1840s row houses, Mm -hmm. all of them have been sold to the construction company that is undertaking this giant project. They've all been sold. Even Tilly's house has been sold. Well, Tilly claims that she has her own lease that's still valid until the following May, May of 1930, uh, another seven months. So Tilly is not moving. Even though she has no neighbors, right? Like all of the neighboring homes here have already been demolished. That's right. And that story is on page four of the paper. But if you flip back to page 15, there are more photos. Um, Another close up shot of the construction site with her, you know, with her house standing kind of like an island in the middle of it. (laughs) And then there's a shot of Tilly. Um, in a polka dot house dress at her kitchen sink, just kind of trying to do her dishes in peace. This is like some intimate access that the Daily News had here into the life of Mrs. Hart. She obviously had a great publicist, or she was just a publicity genius herself. Uh, And it is, I have to say, just a side note, it's really interesting to compare her coverage in the Daily News with the coverage in the New York Times Hmm. Um, because no photos ran in the Times while the Daily News had daily coverage with photos inside and out with Tilly. Uh, This was a great human interest story. You know, it's a kind of like, it's kind of a David and Goliath story that was Mm -hmm. made for the Daily News. Um, And you will appreciate, Greg, the best part. They also ran photos of her with her dogs, Hotsy and Totsy. (laughs) (laughs) Hotsy and Totsy. I think I've seen Hotsy and Totsy. Waiting to tell you that. I think I've seen Hotsy and Totsy down at the dog park recently, actually. (laughs) I think I've seen Hotsy and Totsy in Chelsea. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, wait a minute. So, who is she specifically? So, it's her and Hotsy and Totsy. Mm -hmm. Who are they? up against um, like what was this what is this what is this mammoth construction project that she's up against this was an enormous 25 million dollar apartment and hotel development that was being undertaken by the firm henry mandel associates mm-hmm. now in the four months leading up to this moment this firm had purchased all the other buildings all those other historic buildings on the block and demolished them And they'd actually started digging out the foundations for this huge project. The plan was to replace these old row houses with skyscraper apartment buildings, which would be called London Terrace. All right. Now, I mean, obviously here we're we're a little biased towards Tilly. We love Tilly. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And you did say that she did have a lease. Yep. 
to stay in this building, but something is a little off in this story. Did she have any actual legal basis for staying outside of this lease? Well, it is confusing because Tilly's lease ran through the following May. It's true. Mm -hmm. But her lease was actually a sublease. And the master lease that this was based on had expired already the previous May. This Okay, so this doesn't sound very good for Tilly at all. No, and then to make matters more confusing, she also had... There was the additional issue of her owing several months of back rent. So the whole thing was kind of messy. But regardless, Tilly firmly stated that her lease, the lease that she had signed, was valid for another seven months. And she wasn't moving her boarding house even if the entire block was coming down around her. Now, from the New York Times on October 1st, quote, Despite the fact that all her tenants deserted her for more congenial surroundings, she stayed on. The thud of falling bricks beside her windows and the dust from plastering failed to oust her. Steam shovels arrived and started gouging into the ground all around her, but she refuses to leave. I mean, this is... Sheer madness, craziness. Oh, it's about to get a lot crazier. But before we go any further, can we just pull back for a second here? Because we need to talk about how we got here, literally to this spot. Oh, yeah. Well, Tom, I have come fully prepared (laughs) because, believe it or not, I mean, this sounds like a very small, isolated story, almost kind of intimate in a way, right? It's Mm -hmm. one woman's struggle, her battle. But the entire history of this neighborhood itself, of the neighborhood of Chelsea, is actually pretty important to the events here. That there are even events from the 18th century that affect our story today. 18th century, the time of the Revolutionary War. Which is appropriate, given that she's sort of waging a war here. <laughs> yeah, she's her, her own revolutionary battle. <laughs> but we're even going to a time actually before the time of the Revolutionary War, actually starting in the year 17. 17- 50 and to the time of British New York. Okay, so 1750. By this time, yes. by this time the English had been occupying this area for nearly 90 years. Mm-hmm. Um at least since 1664. Uh but New York was, you know, the city was still located very quite a distance south of this particular setting here. Yes, much of Manhattan like most of Manhattan, actually, by this point, was divided into country homes or county seats. Okay, we've talked about many of these in prior shows, you know, up and down along the coastlines here of Manhattan. Many of the names of British owners have left their marks, have actually left their names. They have become place names of various neighborhoods and streets. Like the Murrays over on their hill. Yes, Marie Hill's a good example. So, in the 1740s, a retired British officer named Thomas Clark moved to the colony of New York with his wife Mary and his daughter Charity. And in 1750, he purchased a large piece of land from a Dutch farmer named Jacob Samendijk. And where exactly was that plot of land, if you had to sort of lay it atop today's street grid? Jacob Salmondike's old farm and the new property, Thomas Clark here, if you use today's grid plan, okay, the modern grid plan, it is from 21st Street to 24th Street. And then on the east side, it's 8th Avenue. On the west, it's just all the way down to the Hudson River. Okay, so 
for locals here, this means essentially from Dallas Barbecue all the way over to the High Line <laughs> and the Chelsea Piers. Yes, actually. In fact, Tom, if you get one of the Dallas Barbecue's Texas size margaritas to go. Because right now, technically, I think you can get one to go. Yeah, you can. <laughs> Well, one could essentially walk the perimeter of Clark's property today and be finished with your margarita by the time you get back to the starting point. Mm-hmm. So I guess you could call that actually a Chelsea size margarita, <laughs> for that was the name of Thomas Clark's estate here, Chelsea. Chelsea. And and where did Thomas Clark get this name, Chelsea. Well, it's a quote from the Valentine's Manual of the City of New York, quote, It may be well to mention why the place was called Chelsea. Thomas Clark had been an officer in a provincial corps. He bought the farm in 1750 and called it Chelsea, being a retreat of an old soldier. Oh, okay. So being that Clark was a former military officer, that, I suppose, makes sense. Yes. And there was a specific mansion on this property that they called Chelsea, which overlooked these rolling lands here. There was an orchard, and there was even a small village, which they called Chelsea Village, which sat between the estate and Bloomingdale Road, which was a little bit east of here. Okay? Okay. And they lived in this mansion? And this was the home of the Clarks, and for the next couple generations, it would be their home as well. Okay. Now, flash forward here to Thomas Clark's grandson and the man that is often considered the godfather of Chelsea, a man named Clement Clark Moore. Oh, getting into the holiday spirit, aren't we, Greg? Mm-hmm. Because many people might know that name, uh, for he was the author of the, the poem that includes the verse, "'Twas the Night Before Christmas." Yes, a, a poem which he wrote from his home here, in Chelsea. But in terms of the story, Clement was responsible for the development of Chelsea and its incorporation into the urban fabric of New York City, because after all, Moore here is the head of the household in the early 19th century. Right around the time of the grid plan of Mm -hmm. 1811, the commissioner's plan, um, when uh, city leaders devised uh, this plan to turn the entire remaining island of Manhattan into this uniform city of streets and avenues. And so Clark here, Clement Clark Moore, seeing the future ahead of him, developed his property with his own particular vision. For instance, in the 1820s, the General Theological Seminary was constructed on the southern part of his old orchard. Which is um, the seminary's Stunning. It's still, fortunately, around today. And that was to be kind of the centerpiece of this whole development. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for so for the rest of the property then, Moore wanted to develop something that was kind of like a fashionable neighborhood for wealthy landowners that would be kind of around this area. And this is, by this time, the 1830s. Yes. Um, which is... Interesting, because the same thing at that time was happening in places like Gramercy Park and around Mm -hmm. Washington Square. In fact, many of these very first townhouses from this period that were built here during Moore's lifetime, they're on the perimeter of the seminary, actually. Mm -hmm. Today, 
this area is preserved as the Chelsea Historic District, and then it was later extended, and then that extension actually goes up to some portions of 23rd Street. Mm -hmm. But uh, the site of Tilly's house, just to bring it back to the story, mm-hmm. is actually across the street, right? The, Immediate, yeah. The north, the northern side of 23rd Street between 9th and 10th. Yes. So when did, when did this Chelsea mansion get demolished? I mean, it stood for quite a while, but by the 1840s, this kind of massive estate housing seemed unsuited for a city that was developing a new form of more popular housing, like the townhouse, right? And later the brownstone. Moore actually moved out, and his family moved out to an estate in Elmhurst, Queens. Mm -hmm. This house, the Chelsea house, was demolished, and all of these lovely hills, this countryside, it was all leveled out. Uh, But Moore was actually not done developing, because in 1845, the architect Alexander Jackson Davis was hired to develop a series of homes here on this block, on on the northern side of 23rd Street. 36 homes in all, and in keeping with the area's very English heritage... You might say um, these new houses were actually designed like London homes. That's interesting. And the, you said the architect's name was Alexander Jackson Davis. Mm-hmm. Do we know? We know that name. Well, he comes up in and out of various shows in the past. Um, he, in fact, had just recently finished another project in New York by the time he got this commission, and one that's perhaps better known to most people, the New York Custom House on Wall Street and Broad Street, which today, of course, we know as Federal Hall. Wow. So the same architect who designed Federal Hall developed these three dozen beautiful homes on the north side of 23rd Street. Yeah, I mean, and like Federal Hall, they all, many of them had columns, you know, mm-hmm. so that was the style of the day. To quote the New York Times from an article in 1967, quote, The houses on 23rd Street had been built in 1845, patterned on the fashionable London flats of the time, six stories of severe brick, stone, and stucco. Collectively, these houses were called London Terrace. And it is in one of these buildings at 429 West 23rd Street that Millie Hart would end up living and operating a boarding house. Yes. So these original London Terrace houses built on the property of Clement Clark Moore, in one of them sits our heroine here. But now, now to the present day of our show, she is facing an eviction notice. And her life here at London Terrace is in jeopardy. And we'll get to how Tilly held out till the end after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. 
In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, so we left off at the beginning of October 1929. Yeah. As Tilly... And Hotsy and Totsy, as they were holed up in her boarding house at 429 West 23rd Street. Yes. One week later, on October 8th, the Times reported that, quote, steam shovels and a wrecking crew were scheduled to begin demolition this morning of the old three-story dwelling, despite the fact that Mrs. Tilly Hart, the tenant, clings to her determination to remain in the house. So... She's in there with only her cousin, Anthony Nugent, as company, and she's ready to fend off anybody from the development company who might try to break in, and especially to break in and serve her papers. Wait, did you say her cousin's name was Ted Nugent? Anthony Nugent. Anthony Nugent. Sorry. Tony Nugent. Tony. Not Ted Nugent. Tony Nugent. <laughs> okay. Well, it's interesting, by the way, that the Times didn't mention her dog's there i mean what do they gotta do to get noticed well no the times actually they do mention the dogs just not by name and unlike the daily news there are actually no photos of the dogs oh no the times writes quote from behind doors barricaded with heavy pipe she subjected each visitor to close scrutiny even her small dog appeared to sense that something was amiss for it answered each ring with furious barking So, yeah, she was expecting a visit from the police because the city had actually condemned her building as unsafe. Mm. And so on October 8th, the wrecking crews were there. And Mm -hmm. the police was also there. The building had been condemned. And at 8.30 in the morning, crews started chipping away at her home's foundation with Tilly still inside. Wow. They were swinging sledgehammers when... Suddenly, around 9 a.m., her cousin Tony poked his head out from the roof with an armful of bricks and started lodging them down on the crew. What? The crew scattered, (laughs) but soon warily came back, you know, to their positions and started chipping away again, hauling off part of the fence um, in her front yard. 
By 10.45 in the morning, her attorney was there, along with um, representatives of the development company. A lot of press had gathered. Mm -hmm. When suddenly, the city's Bureau of Buildings ordered the demolition to stop. They announced that the state Supreme Court first needs to issue a directive for her removal. And how long would that take? That order from the Supreme Court would take about a week. So the demolition crews sort of went back to working on excavating all of the foundations around her house. And Tilly, what was what was she doing um, while she, this was happening? Well, naturally, she started posing for photographs. <laughs> well, naturally. I mean, she, she's safe for a week here, right? Or actually just a little bit under a week, because six days later, on the 14th of October, the Henry Mandel Company, developers of this new London Terrace, were back. Um, with her court order, you know, to finally evict Tilly. But she just, she simply didn't care. She was quoted (laughs) as saying, court order or no court order, we will stay because my sublease runs until the middle of next year, uh, she told the Times. And then she took to her bed, sick to her bed with neuralgia, um, you know, stabbing pains. And so Tilly just stayed. Yeah. Yeah, with the doors barred shut. Two days later, on the 16th, Henry Mandel Associates spent the entire day trying to pry her out of the house. Uh, demolition crew, they, they started erecting scaffolding up the eastern side. Mm. Meanwhile, the Times reported that she was in a jovial mood that morning. By 8.30 in the morning, she was, quote, dressed and evidently prepared for a busy day behind barred doors. So... With the scaffolding up, I assume that there are some workmen ready to go here. Did they start chipping away at the walls while um, she was inside? No, the, the the crew actually decided to start removing the roof, literally Ugh. starting over her head. They got up on the roof, ready to rip it off, when two policemen arrived with an order to stop and protect Tilly and her home. Why would they get involved here like this? I mean, the court had ordered the demolition of the house. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but in in true sort of comedic form, it turned out that the court order hadn't been signed by a Supreme Court justice. So it wasn't valid. Good (laughs) grief. This is like... (laughs) This is like a slapstick comedy in a way. But by this time, it's only noon, right? The side of the house is almost covered in scaffolding and workmen are just kind of licking their chops to start the demolition. Mm -hmm. A crowd had gathered along 23rd Street, uh, along the sidewalks and across the street. But then the word got around that, you know, nothing more would be happening for the day and so the crowds dispersed. Although, you know, the paperwork was pretty promptly corrected and by that afternoon, Tilly was once again visited and served papers this time, papers that had been actually s- signed by Supreme Court justice telling her, in no uncertain terms, that her home was to be demolished. That night, she entertained some lady friends. <laughs> I'm sure. I mean, <laughs> might as well have a little party. Yeah. And the next day was actually surprisingly peaceful. There was no action. But the following day, on October 18th, she was ordered to appear in court the municipal court at 30 West 35th Street. And I imagine that the court was finally going to tell her to pack her bags and move out. Like, Well, in another little plot twist, the court actually took issue with the fact that she was three months behind in paying her rent. 
see, she owed $600, um, which is about $9,000 today. And the court gave her three days to pay the $600 or face immediate eviction. You know, I feel bad for Shelly because had GoFundMe existed in 1929 she could have crowdsourced that six hundred dollars by the end of the day (laughs) yeah yeah she was she was no social media maven she just didn't (laughs) yeah she didn't have those skills but she did have the crowds you know she had people literally in front of her house waiting around the times reported that two days later on october 20th Quote, several hundred persons gathered about the house to take snapshots and to greet Mrs. Hart's every appearance on her small porch with bursts of applause. Although she was apparently kind of saddened by the fact that the crowds were stealing her garden furnishings and they were even stealing her plants. They were they were stealing things to keep as souvenirs. Which would have been sold on eBay had that existed in <laughs> 1929. I guess, thank goodness it didn't. Did yeah. anyone at least offer to help her? Only one person stepped forward with a donation of $1. I mean, that's almost insulting. Yeah. Although Tilly was still hopeful. She told reporters that she had been in discussions with a theatrical agent about holding a benefit production to raise money for her cause. I mean, that could have worked. A benefit performance, very modern Uh idea. But I mean, she would have to like... (laughs) get a move on here right i mean the clock is ticking well yeah i mean they had said she had three days but with like court holidays and the weekend and everything and everything she had about five days although attorneys you know for the new development the new london terrace development basically said that even if she found that six hundred dollars once she paid it they would just start the eviction process again immediately Hmm. and Meanwhile, she was actually starting to get kind of paranoid when she was talking to reporters. She didn't want to discuss any of her plans on the phone lines because she had been hearing some strange sounds, you know, leading her to believe that somebody else was listening in. So even if she had paid this money, Mm -hmm. it really didn't matter because London Terrace was just going to was just determined to start building anyway. Well, actually, they they had already started by this point. The steel frames of some of the giant apartment buildings had already started going up at the ends of the block. And on October 23rd, Tilly's time was finally up. She didn't have the $600. There was no benefit performance. And the next day on October 24th, at around noon, a city marshal named Harry Huter and a team of men entered her house and room by room started removing the furniture, taking it down the staircase, out the door, and out onto the sidewalk, where it was guarded over by a city policeman. Systematically, they went through and emptied out the house. Um, A photo in the Daily News shows men in overalls carrying out furniture and armfuls of household goods. Another photo shows a a huge collection of stuff, overturned chairs, rolled up carpets, out on the sidewalk, um, just next to a fire hydrant, and there are some gawkers who have gathered out on the sidewalk. They're turning and they're smiling for the camera. You know, it's regrettable that she couldn't just have tied like thousands of balloons to the top of her house and just floated away like they did in the movie Up. But this is real life. Did they end up taking Tilly along with everything else? No, because just as they had finished removing 
everything from her house. Her attorney showed up with another court order to temporarily stop the eviction. Tilly's team had found some other angle to pursue, some other technicality. So the court issued a stay of the eviction until the next day. But all of her things, all of her earthly possessions were out here on the street. And Tilly stayed inside the house. And she tried to sleep on newspapers that had been spread across three pantry drawers. A daily news photographer was able to go inside and capture the scene. She's in a black dress, leaning against the wall, propped up on a drawer, and one of her dogs is on her lap. The whole sad saga ended the next day from the daily news. Mrs. Tilly Hart lost her battle against eviction from her Chelsea home yesterday. As she stalked proudly down her steps of 429 West 23rd Street with her boarder dragging Mrs. Hart's pet poodle behind him, Wreckers went to work on the place. She made her exit between a double file of 14 grinning workmen. They tore the front door loose with crowbars and ripped windows from their frames before the woman was out of sight. With an imperious gesture, Mrs. Hart hailed a taxicab. She whispered her destination to the driver that the 300 laughing bystanders might not hear. A photo shows her home that day, nearly demolished. And off in the distance, rising over toward 10th Avenue, you see the steel skeleton of the new London Terrace apartment buildings. And where did she go? You know, I don't know. The, the day after she moved, on October 26, 1929, she told reporters that she'd like to open another boarding house, quote, as soon as I can. And we don't know if she ever did open a boarding house. I mean, I guess it would be kind of hard to find a landowner willing to rent to Tilly. Yeah, she couldn't really go in under the radar and just sort of rent another home. And it, it's hard to track her because she kind of falls out of, you know, I looked for any reference to her that I could find. I really couldn't find anything more about Tilly Hart. And that might also be because her story, you know, would be quickly, like really quickly, overshadowed by other much larger events. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of unbelievable, but just three days later mm -hmm. was Black Tuesday, October 29th, 1929, the day of the stock market crash. And the city quickly forgot about Tilly Hart. And... This was even playing out in the days leading up to Black Tuesday. I mean, when the markets were already suffering, as we've talked about in our shows about the stock market crash. But regardless, you know, of the, the depression that would follow, Mandel, um, the developer, would move forward with the giant apartment complex development project, London Terrace. In fact, on December 17th of that year, 1929, Clement Clark Moore the 15-year-old great-great-grandson of the original Clement Clark Moore actually laid the cornerstone for the London Terrace project in a ceremony that was covered by the press. Hmm. So Lil Clement here <laughs> put down the cornerstone. And where where was the cornerstone? This is a huge place. Where did they lay the cornerstone at? On, he, he laid it on the site of the former Clement Moore home, or the home that had been called the Clement Moore home at 429 West 23rd Street, Tilly's home. 
the the cornerstone itself came from the foundation of Tilly's old home. It was marked with two dates, erected in 1845 and demolished in 1929. But now with the stock market crashed and of course the Great Depression, when would construction proceed? I yeah. mean, did it delay things? What happened? No, the, the first building actually opened in May of 1930. And London Terrace would end up, in the end, comprising 14 apartment buildings that are each between 17 and 19 stories tall. And it would be home to a whopping 1,700 apartments. And I I noticed that you said May 1930, which is when Tilly's lease expired. (laughs) Yes, that is when the first tenants moved in. Uh, into this luxury development. It it included um, an Olympic-sized swimming pool. It had gyms and restaurants and shops. Even during those tricky years of the Depression, London Terrace was very popular. It was nearly always completely rented out. Oh, it's still very popular, actually. Have you been inside? Some of those apartments are gorgeous. Yes. I love that building, or should I say those buildings? Right. And today, um, London Terrace is actually divided into two parts. Um, There are the London Terrace Towers, which are co-ops, and then there are London Terrace Gardens, which are rentals. Uh, But the list of, you know, notable New Yorkers who have, you know, who have or currently do live here is very long. Um, but it includes such bold-faced names as Chelsea Clinton, Malcolm Gladwell, Tim Gunn, Bill Hader, Debbie Harry, Annie Leibovitz, Christine Quinn, and Tilly Hartz. Check out our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, where we'll have photos of Tilly, her dogs, and probably her cousin, too, Tony. Anthony, Tony, Anthony Nugent. By the way, that, that list of celebrities. I was actually when you were describing her leaving the house, a very melodramatic way with the, with all the workmen. Mm-hmm. I was. It was. This almost sounds like it should be a musical, doesn't it? That there should have been a musical about oh. the life of Tilly Hart called Holdout. Holdout. And maybe we can get like Debbie Harry, Bill Hader, Tim Gunn. We can and get Christine some of them. Quinn. Like, and Christine Quinn, they can be involved in the musical. That would be, um, that, okay. I'll just that'll live on in my in my fantasies. Somebody, anyway. somebody, yeah. You want a project for the next couple of weeks? Let's let's get this moving. Hold People, out the this, musical. Th- this is your King Lear for the next couple of months, right? Hold out the musical, the life of Tilly Hart. <laughs> um, by the way, I do want to mention that one fallacy that I saw repeated or and or in those daily news pieces was that Tilly also claimed or the journalists were claiming that Tilly's house was actually where Clement Clark Moore lived and wrote Twas the Night Before Christmas. Oh, yeah, that's not possibly true. (laughs) But if you do jump into some of those old pieces, you will see that. Uh, Just uh, just be aware. Well, maybe the musical version of her life can kind of conflate those stories so she's got more elbow room to have a big musical number. Oh my god. <laughs> Artistic license. Of course yeah. that's where that, that of course that's where he wrote it. By the way, we we greatly appreciate the contributions from listeners and followers of the Bowery Boys podcast via patreon.com. We love our patrons. 
We remain in an independently produced podcast, and it's challenging even in a perfect world to keep afloat. So it, we are, let's just say, extremely grateful for your support and belief in this show. And you're the reason that we were, that we're able to double up shows here during this period. Yes, a huge thank you to those who've joined us on patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. In addition to just feeling great about supporting the Bowery Boys, patrons receive an exclusive access to our patron-only show, The Takeout, which comes out every two weeks. So, so there will be a new episode of The Takeout available next week. Yes. We would also like to say thank you to some new patrons, Corinne S., Matt A., Kirsten D., Barry F., Rhonda B., Daniel L., James P., Roseanne G., David J., and Birgitta M. Thank you very much for your support. We're so happy to have you join us. Also, we would like to invite everybody to send suggestions for these mini-shows. You can email us at tom at Bowery Boys Podcast and greg at Bowery Boys Podcast. We've been getting some really great ideas. We love the emails, so thanks. Keep sending them. Uh, one final thank you to newspapers.com, who we are leaning on a little bit more heavily during this period, as we do not have our rich trove of library books as, that we usually have. So, But that just means more like contemporary accounts of things, and that's always a good thing. That just means more references to Hotsi and Totsi. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Totsi. Thank you, Totsi. And thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.